This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much. And uh, welcome to uh, a very exciting discussion with Professor Barry Eichengreen. I'm sure many of you have come across uh, his works and studies uh, in the past, looking at reserve currencies, digital currencies, how it can impact emerging markets. We've got a lot to talk about. My name is Paul Mackel. I run the Global FX research team here at HSBC. So on that note, it's a privilege to host Professor Eichengreen and uh, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. So it's great to be back with you. So I'm going to talk about prospects for international and reserve currencies, inevitably, given current events touching on the digital. And my point of departure is a standard but not uncontroversial observation, namely that a a multipolar international monetary and financial system is coming, that the current dollar-centric, dollar-dominated system cannot continue to prevail forever because over time the United States will come to account for a declining, shrinking share of the global economy. The dollar becomes a consequential international currency around 1925. And then after World War II, it's progressive decline. So this is the emergence of emerging markets, if you will, the logic of convergence as other economies, first Europe and and, and Japan, and now emerging markets begin to close the per capita GDP gap vis-a-vis the United States. Implication being that the US cannot provide safe and liquid assets to the world as a whole, all by itself indefinitely, because the ability of the US economy and the US fisc to stand behind those assets will be limited relative to the size of the global economy. Other sources of global uh, liquidity will have to be developed. Other sources will have to step up over time if we're going to continue to provide the liquidity that 21st century globalization requires. It could come about conceivably through an enhanced role for the International Monetary Fund's uh, proprietary source of international liquidity, special drawing rights. It could come about through wider use of private label stable coins. It could come about through wider international use uh, of the euro, although my view is that for the time being, the euro is not yet ready for prime time. It could come about through wider international use of of, of the Chinese renminbi, which similarly is not, in my view, yet ready for prime time. And finally, this more multipolar system might come about through sudden migration away from the dollar. That's at least a conceivable scenario. I am a longstanding SDR skeptic uh, on multiple grounds. Uh, if, If we look out there in the world, we see little private commercial and financial use of special drawing rights. And so long as there is little private use 
of special drawing rights for commercial and financial transactions, there's little incentive for central banks and governments to hold reserves in that form. And if those private agents are not doing transactions in SDRs, they have relatively little incentive to hold reserves in SDRs. And, 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 and my forecast would be that uh, this dearth of commercial use will remain the case for the foreseeable future. In addition, uh, a, a true international and reserve currency has to have its own lender and liquidity uh, provider of last resort to backstop the market in, in, in the US case, uh, US treasury bills that are held in large numbers by central banks around the world. And there is no SDR lender of last resort. The IMF is not authorized to inject large amounts of additional SDR denominated liquidity into the markets over a weekend. And it's not gonna be so authorized in our lifetimes because it's not a, a global central bank linked to a global government. The way I think about it is so long as there is no global government, there will be no global lender of last resort to provide this SDR denominated liquidity. More likely I think is that other national currencies will eventually compete with the dollar. So this was my view when I first began to write about this subject a decade or so ago. I thought the euro and the Chinese renminbi were coming and they're still coming, but they, they still haven't arrived. So what we've learned in the intervening decade is that there are formidable preconditions for competing with the dollar. Uh, the euro area has uh, a price stability oriented central bank, which is one precondition. But the problem is uh, the absence of a deep and liquid market in high-grade publicly issued euro-denominated securities. In other words, AAA-rated government securities that can be held as reserves by corporate treasurers and central bank reserve managers outside the euro area itself. So. The European Recovery Fund agreed to last year could change this over time if the European Union issues investment grade public label securities backed by the full faith and credit of European Union governments as a collectivity. But the existing 850 billion euro ERF is peanuts compared to the 20 trillion or so stock of US treasuries out there. So factors holding back the, uh, the Chinese renminbi. One, it comes in the form of capital controls that remain that uh, make it complicated to get in and out of Chinese financial markets. Over time, the Chinese authorities are committed to continuing to relax these and, 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 and deepen the integration of their financial markets with those of the rest of the world. But I think they learned in 2015 from that bout of volatility that you have to do the financial deepening and strengthening of regulation first, and only afterwards relax capital controls to facilitate more cross-border transactions. Nowadays, probably the, uh, the greater problem is that international investors, foreign investors, including central bank reserve managers, wonder whether the rules of the game will be changed arbitrarily because lots of rules affecting Chinese markets, Chinese regulation 
have in fact been changed recently. So if you can change the rules about who can do an IPO, can you change the rules about access to reserves held in Shanghai? Will an e renminbi make a difference? Not immediately, because I think China's central bank digital currency, when it becomes widely available next year, will be widely available only for retail payments, only for relatively small transactions. There will be limits on how much of that digital unit you can hold in your wallet on your cell phone. The PBOC has reassured us, attempted to reassure us that confidentiality and anonymity will be maintained, that uh, they will have access only to limited information about who is using the e-currency and what they're using it for. We will all need reassurance. The proof will be in the pudding there. So it will that will take some time. Finally, digital currencies more generally, I think for digital uh, central bank digital currencies to compete with the dollar, they will have to be used, uh, have utility for cross-border transactions. And, and, and that means they will have to be interoperable. Uh, so China has said that you're not going to be able to use the ERMB outside China itself, but if you can seamlessly exchange it for the E Korean won or the E Thai bot, that will provide an alternative route to trading it for the dollar and then trading the dollar for the won. Indeed, possibly uh, uh, an attractive alternative. But this kind of interoperability is hard to achieve. Ever, ever grand, will this change the attractions of the renminbi going forward? Uh, clearly, it's a meltdown of the Chinese financial system wouldn't be good for the renminbi's prospects, obviously. I'm continue to be of the view that uh, such a meltdown is unlikely. The PBOC recognizes its uh, lender of last resort responsibilities, having all, already injected uh, liquidity into the financial system through repos. Uh, it can compel the big banks to continue to provide essential funding to Evergrande while gradually selling off its remaining assets, its land, and so forth. And uh, it's worth remembering how the dollar's role was not significantly tarnished by the subprime crisis because the Fed did act as liquidity and provider and lender of, uh, of last resort. So unless this problem gets severely out of hand, which I, I do not think will be the case, I don't think see this as changing the picture significantly. But I do worry about the, the debt ceiling problem. Uh, we have always averted uh, debt defaults in the past in the United States when the debt ceiling has bound. So we've had the debt ceiling for over a century since 1917. It was put in place for peculiar reasons during World War I that have nothing to do with the present. And whenever we've approached it, we've managed to suspend it or raise it. And my best guess is that we will succeed in raising it again. And let me stop there. All right. Well, well, thank you very much. I mean, there was a lot of ground covered and it certainly gives us a lot of uh, avenues to roam in terms of topics. But I think probably a good place to start is I've always enjoyed reading uh, your works about the, the multipolar system and, and how you're viewing it. But 
in the context of, of emerging markets, what's the outlook for them in this in this scenario? Are they just going to be lost in the shuffle or will they have to pick sides uh, with with countries within blocks or from a geopolitical angle too? Like how will they be able to navigate uh, all these these geopolitical tensions, et cetera, in, in the future? I don't think emerging markets will have to pick sides. When I think about this, I think first and foremost about Asia. So Asian countries ex-China trade equally with China and with the United States. They, they trade with Europe uh, as well. So their banks and firms will be doing transactions with banks and firms in those other regions whose natural habitat is the renminbi or the dollar or, or, or the euro equally. So uh, their central banks will want to hold each of those currencies as reserves so they can provide them to banks and firms doing business in that currency when liquidity is otherwise scarce. They, their banks and firms will have all the advantages uh, of uh, portfolio diversification as well in that scenario. So I think emerging markets will benefit from having more alternatives, not being dependent solely on the dollar. Yeah, I guess I guess one of the issues though, and even if we go back to March last year when the kind of the COVID shock was first making its way through financial markets, you know, it once again highlighted the the stress and strain on on emerging market economies and how their need for dollars was, you know, just endless, right? I mean, it was just the dollar liquidity tightness was just so pronounced. And aren't many of these uh, economies still so tethered to to the dollar? So we can talk about the longer term change, but it's, it you know, we've seen a number of examples of different shocks and it just seems like the, the need for them to own and hold dollars and, and have access to dollars is growing. It's it's not shrinking. Well, I think the um, the the need to ensure that they have adequate liquidity, which includes high on my list of what constitutes adequate liquidity, would be adequate reserves for the central bank and adequate buffers for international buffers for private financial institutions. Things didn't turn out so badly in in uh, emerging financial markets in. 2020, uh, th- there was uh, severe stringency at the outset. The Fed uh, responded by pumping lots of liquidity into U.S. financial markets and reactivating its swaps, and that I think relieved a lot of the initial stringency. So there still were problems uh, of uh, emerging markets being punished by financial markets, seeing their currencies. Decline now being forced to raise interest rates and tighten, despite the fact that recovery is still only tentative. But those yeah. severe liquidity problems were were not as severe as many of us feared. And I I I think you're right that much too much hinges on the good offices of the Fed. The fact that the Fed recognized its domestic and global responsibilities. So uh, uh, again, I think the world will be a safer place from a portfolio diversification standpoint, if and when there are other liquidity providers of last resort. But for the moment, we're, we're talking first and foremost and really only about the Fed. 
A separate question, though, is you, you touched upon it earlier, too, about the dollar's reserves status and how you know, a trigger of sorts needs to be uh, to occur to, to probably see that that change. You know, there's been lots of theories and, and debates about it. But, you know, last year, it seems like the Fed really uh, sat up and took notice of what was happening in the functioning of the U.S. Treasury market. And then it came out with that repo facility because what was happening in the absence of that, you know, many countries and particularly emerging countries had to sell their treasuries. And do you think that that was a kind of a first glimpse of, of a trigger that maybe took the, the shine off, off the dollar as a reserve currency, or is that just a blip? Yeah, I think what, what happened last year is a, is a reminder that the dollar's international and reserve currency status is sound, firmly entrenched, because number one, the Fed did shoulder its responsibilities. Mm. And number two, we were again reminded that we don't yet have viable alternatives to the dollar out there. So as I think about the scenario where uh, the debt ceiling really is breached and uh, the Treasury announces that it is not going to prioritize the bondholders, you know, one scenario people talk about is that the treasury decides to pay the bondholders in full to uh, avoid a default on on treasury bonds and it cuts everything else by 40 percent which is roughly what would be required will that trigger a move away from the dollar i think the most likely answer is no because not in the short run because the fed would do again exactly what it did in in march of 2020 it would ensure that the, the market and treasury bills continued to function and that people who wanted to buy them, sell them, and use them as collateral could do so. And again, uh, in, investors would be reminded that they can't all get through the door into euro-denominated bills and bonds and, at, at the same time. But uh, you know, bad behavior by the United States politically, financially, and and otherwise will accelerate the movement away from the dollar that is currently occurring on a glacial scale right i think i think i think that's very clear i think that's a very a very very interesting point i, I want to come back to uh, one of the comments you mentioned earlier about being a, a longtime sdr skeptic and we know back in august uh, there was quite a big allocation new allocation of 650 billion dollars worth of sdrs meant to be going uh, for pandemic relief. And uh, I'm aware of your thoughts in terms of how you've been looking at that allocation. And in the, again, in the context of emerging markets, can you just share your insights on that? Because uh, I know you, you have some, some strong, strong thinking about it, which I think would be very valuable for the, for the audience. So uh, only, only a tiny fraction uh, on the order of 5% of that SDR allocation went to poor countries. And I, if I remember the figures, something on the order of 40% and no more went to developing countries and, and emerging markets. Uh, the bulk of the SDR allocation went to rich countries that, that don't need it, that can print their own currency to provide liquidity without serious adverse consequences, and of course have been doing so long, long before that 
SDR allocation. So I think the justification for the allocation was as part of a larger effort to pool those SDRs and lend them or, or give them to poor countries. So the, uh, the give them part, which I think would be optimal, poor countries don't need more debt, which they would incur if they were lent these F SDRs. Unfortunately, the, uh, the aid or, or, or gift part isn't going to happen because in the US, it would require congressional yeah. approval and we can't get congressional approval on anything at the moment um uh so i second best would be to to lend these sdrs to poor countries on highly concessional terms and i very much hope that something along these lines will be announced but i've been keeping my ear to the ground and i've been struck by the silence on what the the plan is and whether there will be uh agreement on it it does seem, though, that that a number of emerging countries that really needed this this funding uh, have actually really welcomed it. So something's better better than nothing. But you know, I do think you make a very interesting observation about there's plenty of countries that got SDRs that it's just not they just don't need it. So it says something about perhaps reform and how to benefit more, uh, particularly you know very low income income economies. Um, like maybe just one other question in terms of uh, reserve currencies, and maybe we can steer the discussion into, into the digital aspect. Uh, and it comes down to, we've talked about the multipolar world. We've talked about how the renminbi is a reserve currency. It's very slow moving uh, in, in terms of its evolution. It's getting there, but uh, let's peer into the, the very, very far future and, uh, is there a contender out there that you think has has a chance to become become a reserve currency? Is there anything on your radar that's flashing, interesting, uh, again, related to, to something in the emerging markets, anything that stands out? So when I think about the preconditions for a reserve currency, the, the recipe uh, I always fall back on is it has to be the currency of a country with size, stability, and look, size, stability, liquidity, and security, those would be the yeah. four elements. So start with the size, that points you to Brazil, India, South Africa, maybe. And then you have to ask about the stability, political, economic, and financial. And in all these cases, there are doubts and questions that uh, will will take time to to resolve, but there is a, a, a another scenario, I suppose, where instead of the dollar being felled by the Indian rupee, it's uh, swamped by uh, a collection of midgets. So that kind of brings us to the the digital option uh, that you want to talk about next, Paul. Namely, is the fact that network effects are important and and, yeah. and the size of the economy is a precondition for widespread use of its currency. Is that situation going to change with central bank digital currencies? So everybody will be able to use the Thai baht and the uh, Chinese renminbi equally conveniently, even though the market for one is an order of magnitude smaller than the market for, the, for another. But uh... 
again, following your your works on on central bank digital currencies, uh, you've you've also been a little skeptical about the need of them or potential success for them. And it seems like many central banks, whether in the developed or developing world, are increasingly going down this path. Is this just is this a, a flawed policy in in your view for for, for these central banks? No, I think it, it is a concern about losing control of, uh, of the payment system Yeah, fundamentally. Uh, central banks rightly look back at the age when they relied, when they issued paper currency and coin, and now they realize that they issue uh, electronic liabilities to commercial banks, which turn around and, and, and provide currency services to their customers. So they worry about moving into the digital age. So if Facebook could go down, what assurance do we have that the central bank digital currency couldn't go offline due to a software update or a hack or whatever sometime in the future? So central banks, I think, are right to be moving slowly on this front, and I hope they will continue to move slowly, I think, because of concerns about bank runs and uh, tax evasion and money laundering. They're going to limit the utility of their central bank digital currencies. So again, retail transactions, mainly domestic use, mainly. So how uh, attractive an alternative to the dollar and and eventually the euro and 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 the actual existing renminbi will they be? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think that that, that there's a valid point there. That but a, a, another point too is you talked about the difficulty for these digital currencies to go cross border and you know there have been some tests and presumably there will continue to be a lot more tests. Do you think that uh, there could be legal jurisdiction uh, problems uh, between countries that prevents uh, central bank digital currencies from from going cross-border? Do you think that some countries just say, I don't want that digital currency circulating in my domestic financial system, so I'm uh, I'm going to not allow it? Could Could you imagine that type of scenario? Absolutely. So we have uh, a century and more of history with capital controls when uh, governments have regulated what kind of uh, financial instruments their residents can hold or who who can hold their financial instruments. So yeah, I can I, I, I can well imagine that uh, governments and central banks worry about currency substitution. Instead of dollarization, they worry about ERMB. Uh, and and losing control of domestic monetary policy uh, for that reason. They, they will use regulation to prevent residents from substituting out, out of the local currency into uh, otherwise easily available foreign central bank digital currency. I've no doubt that uh, that's on the minds of central bankers and that we would see some of that if CBDCs beca- became pervasive. But also some of the motivation too with, with central bank digital currencies is to alleviate, if not hinder, uh, the interest in cryptocurrencies. Uh, some central banks have been 
you know, very vocal about that. And so how do you, how do you view the competition between these two groups? And it ultimately, will it be the CBDCs become the, the dominant force or is the horse already bolted and, and crypto, uh, that's it. It's just going to keep on getting bigger and more developed. Any Any insights on that? I think plain vanilla cryptocurrencies, the Bitcoins uh, of the world are likely to remain a niche product. You know, people talk about $2 trillion of global capitalization or $2.5 trillion of global capitalization of cryptocurrencies, but that's still a, a, a drop in the bucket as a investment product, as a part of your portfolio. Therefore, the real competition for uh, central banks will come from stable coins. And uh, I think they will be strictly regulated in order to prevent, l- limit the danger that they will take over the, uh, the payment system. So ultimately, I think it, you know, for financial stability reasons, financial regulators will look at, at, at the plain vanilla cryptocurrencies and worry about whether there could be contagion problems or concentrated holdings and so forth. But central banks will look to the CBDCs and they they will regulate them strictly. They will look to the stable coins. And uh, El Salvador has been legalizing Bitcoin. Is uh, how how do you view this this experiment? Uh, are you <laughs> doubtful? Or are you do you see any 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 potential positives out of out of this approach by them because it's quite an interesting one for for many economies right now yeah uh i i i think it's insanity and <laughs> um i i've noticed that there have been street demonstrations against the the legal requirement that corner stores and vendors and so forth have to accept bitcoin in payment because they they worry about it's going to lose 10% of its value before they can offload it or whatever. So I, I, I think it's a publicity stunt. It's worth of, uh, observing that El Salvador can play this game for a while because they already don't have a domestic currency. They use the dollar. The dollar. So they're yeah. not giving anything up. And you're importing a lots lots of potential volatility into your into your domestic financial system. Maybe maybe just one final question from my side. And and when we're thinking about the outlook for for central bank digital currencies, and what about capital flight? I mean, and I think this is also relevant to the emerging world. Could this be a way to limit that if it's being used more in terms of domestic financial systems and the monitoring and usage of it is growing? Could it actually curtail some of that capital flight in amongst emerging market economies? So viewing that as a positive, potentially. Well, I presume that if, if you're you're holding the local CBDC, you can still sell that and convert that into other domestic assets. So I don't see uh, the creation of a CBDC that can only be used locally as changing the scope for capital flight because uh, you can still get into other local assets which will uh, whose conversion into dollars or whatever uh, will will be as easy or or hard as subject to capital controls or not as it was 
in, in, in the past. The real worry here is about not, not so much about capital flight abroad, I think, as flight from domestic bank deposits in the event of doubts about local financial institutions. And here, the, the treatment is to limit how much CBDC you can hold uh, at, in order to prevent people from fleeing from domestic financial institutions whose stability is in doubt. Yeah. So, I mean, if you go beyond a certain transaction level, it would raise a red flag. I, I'd like to to thank uh, Professor Barry Eichengreen. I mean, he's a great economic historian, economist, and I also uh, like to give him the the honor of being a visionary as well. I love reading his works. I think this has been a very engaging discussion. So once again, thank you very much. And it was a privilege. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast, or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.